Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. Just ahead, we'll hear from Caitlin Monroe Howes about her new science fiction novel, The Awoken. Then, master puppeteer Jaghetto details his current exhibition at the Center for Puppetry Arts. And later, Tyler Lee Frush and our series, Speaking of Music. But first, let's head over to the intersection of art and sport. Art in the Paint is an Atlanta-based nonprofit created by former pro basketball player and coach Aurelius Cooper, a.k.a. Hoop. The organization aims to beautify and revitalize decaying basketball courts by engaging artists to paint the court's surface with colorful designs. When Aurelius recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes, he explained why he started Art in the Paint. I started the organization to counteract some negative experiences I had at Stone Mountain. Um, I went up the mountain, and I am uh, both Black and Latino. I'm uh, African-American and Dominican. And just seeing, you know, Confederate soldiers honored there, wasn't as much of a problem for me as others but just thinking about the negativity that's involved with the art and how i could counteract that with something positive in my community rather than being one of those people who's like i want to blow up the mountain like i'm not blowing up the mountain (laughs) (laughs) you know i can do something positive instead in my own community and uplift people using art so that prompted art in the paint Oh, it's such a wonderful idea. I was curious, do you have any background in the arts or painting yourself? I am a terrible painter, but a wonderful project manager. I'm a fan of all art. And in my years of playing basketball, I actually became a bit of a collector. And I started to notice that Nothing in the world. I've I've traveled to over 36 countries, did basketball work in 13. And I noticed that nothing brings people together like sports and art. If you just think about how many people listen to music or will go to a festival or concert or go to a, a basketball or football or baseball game or soccer game, I just saw the unifying powers of art. And I knew that that would be a way to get people together to work towards um, community building. Oh, that's fantastic. So how many basketball courts have you 
revitalized to date? I think we're on number 24 wow. to date. We just started a partnership with Savannah College of Art and Design, a.k.a. SCAD. Mm-hmm. They have a project called Paint Our Parks. And we're doing a little bit of admin work and uh, just some of the programming for that as well. So I think we're on 24 starting today. Like we're literally putting the goals in right now. Uh, How do you find the courts? Uh, We get a ton of emails, sometimes politicians, rappers, just community members all reach out to us. And also, I'm an Atlanta guy. I grew up here and I grew up playing on a lot of courts around the city. It was a thing when I came home, I always wanted to host camps or give back to the communities. And I just kept noticing like, man, these parks are really torn down. I have younger uh, godchildren and I couldn't see bringing a five-year-old to a court that has huge cracks, a bunch of glass on it, questionable drug paraphernalia, possible gang activity. You know, all these things were at the park. And I was like, there's everything here but basketball. Like, literally everything but basketball. So we got inspired to kind of change that around. Yeah. Well, so where are some of the locations? My favorite location right now is Dare Park 1. We're actually going to be doing a Dare Park 2, uh, Howell Park in the West End, Rose Circle Park in the West End at the Lee and White Street development is probably one of our favorites. You know what? They're all my favorite. Um, (laughs) We did a park in East Point that meant a lot to us. It was at Brookdale Park. There was a young man named Tyrell Sims who was uh, shot in a drive-by. He was just an innocent bystander. And we were already planning on painting the court But um, when he passed away, we were so touched that we didn't know whether to put rest in power or rest in peace on the court. And now the court says power and peace, and it has his uh, jersey number on there in East Point, which is a very tragic thing. And we're um, really sad about it, but we were proud to be able to honor such a remarkable young man. Yeah. I realize you can't possibly go into all 24, but Coop, would you describe some of the paintings you and your team have created? You mentioned Rose Park. That is gorgeous. Yeah, Rose Circle, Elaine Stevenson, a very talented artist, she painted a mural for a court mural for um, the West End community. You know, most communities have community colors, and we had the name Rose Circle. She made a, um, I think, African-inspired design that had a beautiful rose on it, and it utilized the colors of green, yellow, purple, maroon, and red, because those were the neighborhood's colors, to really just get the most out of the design, and it was, it was lovely. Uh, there's a rapper named Lil Baby. Lil Baby actually uh, partnered with Foot Locker to hire us to go to Oakland City Park, also known as James Orange Park. We renovated that court with uh, actual visual of Lil Baby giving 
doing community service in the park and Reverend James Orange in the middle, kind of just showing, bridging the gap between civil rights leaders and current activists that try to help out in the community. Is there another court or maybe two that you would like to describe for our listeners? Sure. So one of the greatest honors that we've had was being able to do a court for President Jimmy Carter. It is a boys and girls club in Plains, Georgia. It's a simple design. It's just a, um, of course, the boys and girls club logos. But we did a um, picture of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter in the middle. And there is a, I think it says it's a great place to start or whatever their slogan is. But we actually spruced up the backboards the polls just redid the game lines and made it possible for them to have leagues there. So that was one of our most proudest moments because you don't think that, you know, being a, um, you know, washed up basketball player that you're going to get to be the president. So that was, that was very cool and inspirational. The other thing that we just did, that's like probably the most amazing thing we've done is we worked with an artist called Kevin Bongang, and he uh, designed a mural at the Kensington Martyr Station that is just phenomenal. It's the largest transit mural in the world, actually, and it was just a parking lot, and now there's two soccer fields, and we have a mural going all the way around it, which is, like, probably the most incredible thing that we've ever been able to do. Like, honestly, it, it just blew our mind away, especially with the World Cup coming. It's just a um, a wonderful thing. Yeah, we have our own Martyr card that has the actual mural on it. So that's probably the most um, memorable and amazing thing that we've ever been able to be a part of. In addition to beautifying, there is a social justice component to the art that's included in many of your murals? Yes. While we don't often reflect social justice in the artwork, what we try to do with our programming is bring free programming for kids who, in a lot of cases, wouldn't be able to afford it normally. For example, in the 30310 zip code, uh, the median family income is about $32,000. And, you know, statistically speaking, most children who are in that price range, their parents can't afford for them to play organized sports, which, you know, inadvertently leads to them finding other outlets and other things to do. So what we do is we organize free sports clinics, free basketball camps, free basketball leagues that include mentorship, meals, and health fairs at all of our locations as well. So that's how we approach social justice. It, it has to be more than just uh, holding up signs and yelling at people. We want to actually bring uh, equity to people, especially girls. What we found is my goddaughter plays at Rutgers University. And I can only imagine when she was four or five years old, bringing her to a basketball court where there's a bunch of large men, some of them drinking, some of them smoking, all of them using foul language, 
and there's nothing there that makes her feel safe. Kids and women especially deserve safe spaces to play and it can't just be for the guys. You know, I'm a large black and brown man, right? So I feel pretty safe, but I want everybody to be able to go to one of our courts and let the art give them a blanket of security and safety. That's very real. That is so admirable. You mentioned the low-income neighborhoods and how households struggle simply to make ends meet, don't have income for children to engage in sports. I was wondering if you have gotten any pushback or hesitancy from neighborhood residents when you beautify these courts. Do some of the residents worry that gentrification will displace them and and these beautiful designs are a sign of that gentrification? We canvass the neighborhoods first. We talk to all of the uh, neighborhood planning units and a part of the City of Atlanta Park Pride process is us actually getting approval from the neighborhoods associations. So we do a great bit of research and communication beforehand, and we include people in the process. So if we're painting, anyone in the neighborhood can come out and paint. They're also giving a heads up and invited to any events that we have. All their kids are invited to the leagues. It's a partnership. It's not an opportunity for us to come in and take over. We actually become a part of what that neighborhood is doing and talk to the planning committees as well. And is the artist part of any of this? Yes. So the art has to be approved by the neighborhood planning unit. And most of the time, the artist lives within a five-mile radius of the court. Cool. So, for example, we've done courts in Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Dominican Republic. I think only in Dominican Republic did we actually bring in artists. We prefer for our artists to be able to drive to work in the morning and see kids playing on their work. That's part of the joy of it. And just imagine being a kid and going out there and painting something that's a part of your neighborhood for years to come. It's such an empowering thing. Oh, yeah, such pride. Though that makes me wonder, with such visual beauty at their feet, and, okay, when when they're looking down, maybe dribbling is okay, but <laughs> how much of a distraction is the art on the court? Not much. Not much. So we still have game lines. Uh, Everything is still official. The goals are still 10 feet high. The backboards are still backboards. They might be painted. Yeah. The poles might be painted, but it's not really a distraction at all. And no hesitation about hurting the paint, hurting the design, that shoes are pretty safe. But, you know, there's a lot of squeaking and pounding. Oh, no. So we uh, 
we're able to work with a wonderful company called Acrotech that makes tennis paint. So that's what we use. So if you ever go to a tennis court, we use a specially pigmented tennis paint. So it's made for high impact. It's made for the kids to do everything they want to. I mean, we've had performances on our courts. We've had everything you can think of, even some things we don't want, like cars and motorcycles yeah. driving on our courts. And it, they, they're pretty durable. They're pretty durable. What are the long-term goals for art in the paint? We are, our long-term goals are all centered around expanding our programming and being able to close some of the gaps that are left by uh, financial disparities in our communities. We have STEM programming now. We're going towards a little bit more programming that will combat food insecurity. Uh, of course, like I said, we're working on the equity piece for specifically for play equity and making sure that girls have a place to play where they're safe, where they can get their skill development and be able to do the same exact things as the boys. And where kids who, you know, traditionally would not be able to have access to sports because of financial reasons, we want to make sure that there's no kid out there that can't play in an organized sport. Playing without a coach, playing without mentors, playing without, you know, meals and uniforms, those things are fine, but there's a certain level of investment that you have to make into children to yield the return. And I think so many times we're asking kids to give us a return without us investing in them. So long-term, we want to continue to partner with uh, great folks. Like we partnered with United Healthcare. We were able to partner, like I said, with Foot Locker. We partnered with SCAD. Just making sure we grow these partnerships to ensure more resources for the community. Aurelius Cooper, founder of Art in the Paint. More information about the nonprofit is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll meet the author behind the new science fiction novel, The Awoken. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and it is great to have you along. There's an old Italian proverb about dying that roughly translated means, once the game is over, the king and the pawn go back to the same box. Well, what if death was no longer the great equalizer that we know it to be, and instead, 
with the right amount of science and resources, we could choose another path. This is the future that author and Atlanta native Caitlin Monroe Howes creates for her characters in her debut novel, The Awoken. Her book betrays a world where cryogenics has advanced and resurrection is possible. But with this second chance at life comes a bounty of complications, and although Howe's novel tells a story of intrigue, corruption, prejudice, and fear, it's also one heck of a love story. The author joins me now via Zoom. Caitlin Monroe Howes, welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. This book was such a great read. I really enjoyed it. Would you start out by giving us a brief synopsis of the book and please introduce us to your main character, Alibine? Absolutely. So Alibine Rivers is 23 years old and she gets a terminal cancer diagnosis. And so she she's in the, you know, at the throes of true love. You know, she's she has the absolute love of her life, Max Green um, by her side. And she tries to fight the cancer, but unfortunately is unsuccessful and she dies in 2020. But before she dies, she makes the sort of radical decision to cryogenically preserve her body as a last chance for the hope of a life. And she does this without knowing that science will one day be able to resurrect bodies. She just sort of does this with the hope that that one day they, it will be possible. And so she cryogenically preserves her body. And then 100 years later, after science has figured out how to resurrect uh, human bodies, she comes back to life and she comes back to life in a, in a very different world than she was expecting. In this world, it is actually illegal to be a resurrected human. And she's resurrected by this group of this kind of underground militia civil rights organization who are trying to fight for the rights of people like her, people called the Awoken. She finds out a lot of things that I won't, I don't want to give away, but she, she does a lot to try and fight for the rights of people like her. Very cool. And your inspiration and desire to tell this story comes from a place of real life experience. Will you share what happened to you when you were 17 years old? Yeah, absolutely. So actually the the first line of the novel is I was 23 years old when I, when I died. And that line or a version of that line, I actually wrote when I was 17. And I wrote the line in my in my diary, I wrote, I was 17 years old when I died. And I wrote that right after I had a pretty drastic car accident. And I and I was dead. I my heart stopped beating. By the time the ambulance arrived, I had no signs of life. And that experience has very much haunted me, as, as you can imagine it would. That that trauma has haunted me, you know, for the last almost two decades. But what's really interesting about this novel is I started writing it not not realizing that that's where I was. That's the place that I was writing it from. You know, I I started writing this novel because I because I make documentaries and I had just come off making this amazing documentary for MTV following this group of at risk and homeless trans youth in Los Angeles. And the experience making that documentary, I just I was so angry about how, you know, by getting to know these these great kids and just an experience of walking down the street with them, I saw how my life based on my perceived identity was just more unfortunately valued by society. It was protected. You know, people would say horrible things to these kids who were great and I didn't have the same kind of bias against me. And that made me so, so angry that we, we live in a society, even in Los Angeles, where people could have that kind of vitriol towards towards someone just because of who they are. So writing this novel came initially from that, from me wanting to unpack this need that we have as humans to to really other 
and condemn people who we feel are other than us. So that's sort of where my head came at it. But it wasn't until I read the first draft of my novel that I realized that I was actually tapping into this trauma that I had when I was 17. You know, when I died, I I had this very uh, visceral experience of nothingness. It's something that I can still feel. It's something that I can picture in my head. And that nothingness kind of became the, the antagonist on the page in my novel. You know, all these experiences were there on, in my novel. And I didn't even realize that until I had gone back and read it. And, and that was when I realized, oh, this first line actually came from this diary I had when I was 17 years old. So it's sort of interesting. I always find how writing is such a great therapeutic experience, not only for the writer, but then obviously, hopefully for the readers as well. Absolutely. And so you are a storyteller by profession as an Mm -hmm. Emmy nominated, you won't say it, I will documentarian. (laughs) So it's easy to understand, obviously, where your interest in life after death comes from. But why did you choose to write a novel? Why not create a documentary about this instead? Well, this story has actually lived with me in kind of a, a variety of different ways. And I'm a screenwriter also as, as part of my background. And I didn't know this was a novel at first. At first, I started kind of writing it in these very different formats. And then it just, the way it came out, it was it was a novel and I couldn't really deny it anymore. You know, I, I wasn't, at the time when I started writing this, I wasn't an author. I've always been a very avid reader. You know, books have been such a huge part of my life. But for me, I was I was this, you know, visual storyteller is what I sort of always told anybody who would listen. But yeah, it was just so clear to me that this was this was a novel. And so I, I began writing it. And I that was sort of right before the the pandemic hit. And then I had I had my son, which obviously threw in all these complications. I had my first child, which it would became very difficult to then write about, you know, death and dying and this experience. You know, I was uncovering this trauma from when I was 17 to do that while having a newborn in my arms was also provided its uh, its challenges. But yeah, for me, it was just it was the story that needed to be unpacked, I think, in literature, because I feel like novels can do things to us and for us in a way that other formats can't. Yeah, novels definitely give us the option to take a pause whenever Mm. we need it versus when the storyteller Mm -hmm. is ready. And there are some themes in this book that definitely had me going, all right, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee, process that for a minute or two and come back. When did your interest in cryogenics begin? And are you interested in the process at this point in your life for your own future? That's a great question and one that I ask myself on a regular basis. So after after my car accident, after my experience with death, I became obsessed with life extension science and I've been following it pretty regularly of you know since that point. And it's pretty amazing where we're at. I mean, we're very close to to these kind of huge breakthroughs in these various researches that are coming out. And cryogenics has always been the one that's been the most interesting to me because that's sort of been the one that's been around for the longest. You know, we all have this this sort of legend idea that, you know, Walt Disney froze his brain or something. But mm. it is what it is, what's fascinating about it is it's something that's not the science fiction. You know, that's something you can do today. There's a company you can call up, anybody can call up and sign a contract that you're going to have your your body preserved after death. So what's fascinating about that to me is is it exists today. And what's great about it too is we already know how to resurrect some 
pretty complicated mammals. I think it can do rats. There's some new studies coming out all the time of, of people using cryogenics in various medical ways. So I, I think the obsession started when I was very young, but it's just been fascinating to watch how it's evolved and changed over the years. And I think this is a real question that we're all going to have to answer pretty soon for ourselves is, you know, what what is life and what do we do when we can all of a sudden, you know, play this, you know, have this godlike power and decide who who gets to die and when do we get to die, if at all? To answer the second part of your question, I don't know if I would. I, I when I was seventeen, I I thought I would absolutely, as soon as it was as it was available, if I could afford it, I would absolutely preserve my body. But it's so interesting as I've as I've gotten older, I sort of wondered if that would still be the case. You know, I think there's something about valuing life when you know there's an end to it. But then again, you know, that that sort of nothingness that I saw still still haunts me. And can we really accept that this is our only existence and we don't get anything after that? Yeah. Within the first pages of your prologue, you explain that above all else, this is a story about love. And then you rock it off into the world of science fiction. Why did you want to anchor this futuristic book with a love story? Well, I think, well, first of all, I'm just a sucker for a good love story. You know, I whenever, <laughs> whenever I read a book, that's what, that's what keeps me turning the page. But for me, I think that's actually has a lot to do with, with my son. You know, I, like I said, it was sort of hard being this new mom writing about death. And so the book kind of evolved and changed quite a bit after I became a mom and the love story became a huge, huge component of it because I think the love story for me is this example of hope right? And so even in death, even in, you know, tragedy, I think we as humans, what's what makes us so special is that we have hope. And that's kind of what drives us along, you know, towards the end of the book, there's a quote that says, you know, this is a story about love, but now you know, it's a story about all kinds of love. So while while you start the book kind of thinking this is just about, a, you know, a traditional love story between these these two people, it actually becomes this larger love story about about how we love each other as humans and how we can empathize with one another and treat each other, hopefully, as sort of each other's loved ones. Yeah. And those are the parts in the book that really actually got me choked up. When your main character has a minute to breathe and calm down and maybe shower for the first time in forever, the woman who is assisting her doesn't say a word the entire time. But when she's finished getting dressed, she just gives her a hug and walks away. That just choked me up. That's actually that moment was really inspired by my postpartum after after I had a pretty multiple day traumatic labor. And, mm. and I had this one nurse who was just kind of, I felt like as a woman, just there for me, just kind of didn't talk much, just kind of helped me as she needed to. And, and she was a very big inspiration for that, for that moment. Mm, it felt very real. If you're just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and my guest is author Caitlin Monroe Howes, and we're discussing her debut novel, The Awoken. Another element that you add into the story to help move it along and to help serve as a great way to go back in time is lucid dreaming and lucid memories. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a lucid memory? I've never had a lucid memory, but I've had that, that I've had lucid dreaming my, my whole childhood. I had these, I think now they're called like night terrors, but oh. where I'd have these, these dreams where I'd be stuck and I knew I was dreaming, but at the same time, it almost made it more real to me. Like I could feel everything and I couldn't get out of it. I felt very trapped. 
it was hard for me to deal with that as a child. But those experiences are are what influenced then these, yeah, these lucid memories. So one of the facts of coming back to life is your as your brain tries to process it in this novel, you you kind of viscerally experience your first life again. It's not that you have memories of it that flash in your head. You actually kind of go back and relive these moments. And then as you go through the novel, you actually realize that sometimes these memories, like memories always are, they're not quite always reliable. They sometimes twist and turn and are impacted by, by other things beyond the truth. So that was a really fun tool to use in terms of telling the story and really kind of revealing how how traumatic it was for Alibine to to try and piece her two lives together. Indeed. Another way you engage your readers with important world building history is through what presents like found paper, scraps of newspapers, notes and the like. Why did you choose to present the past and sometimes the future in this way? So these found documents is, is exactly what I call them. The found documents were were just a blast to write to. You know, I love playing with medium and playing with different aspects of storytelling. So, for example, I got to write a dissent from from a Supreme Court justice on this Supreme Court case that is pretty pivotal to the to the story. So that was really fun to be able to step out and write that. And so I used these as as a tool to to tell the story and to give you this information in in different and new ways. And then by the end of the book, I won't give anything away, but by the end of the book, it kind of it ties in and you understand why all of these these found documents are have been throughout the story. You know, the book has some dystopian elements to it, one of which is a thoroughly divided country of which your characters are located within the area governed by the UA or United America, as they're called at the time. What type of real world inspiration did you draw from to create the UA? I'm almost afraid to ask. Well, when I was world building, the the thing that was most important to me, you know, as I said, this came from from a very real place, a very real experience that I had in our world. So I didn't want to create this sort of Blade Runner-esque future dystopian place where, you know, it doesn't seem recognizable. I wanted to create a, a world that was just slightly slightly off from our own, but quite, but quite similar. So I wanted to make sure that there weren't, you know, flying cars everywhere and massive skyscrapers. You know, it, it, it feels like our our world. That was the kernel that I started with is how, what do I do to create this, this world that feels so much like our own? And then from there, I took a lot of the current issues that we were facing right now. And I kind of expanded on them. A lot of the discussions we're having around like identity politics and all of these things, these sort of hot button issues. I wanted to explore that and really see like, okay, well, what, let's watch this. Let's see how this goes to the end of the line. And what is that? What kind of country does that turn us into? And that's how I came up with the country that Alabine wakes into, which is the United America. The area that we are in, in Georgia, Chicago, New York, all of that falls into your United America. But there's areas to the West that don't. And that was the one thing that I I'd like during the novel, I kept wanting to know more <laughs> about what was life like for the people who weren't in the United America? Yeah. So in the, what you find out in the novel is that the the country, as we know it today, America has split and the Western states have formed their own country. And then the Eastern states have become United America, you know, and that, that again came from a lot of, you know, I live both in Atlanta and Los Angeles and seeing the divide in the country, seeing how people talk about the country in LA versus how people talk about the country on the East coast. I found that kind of dichotomy really fascinating. And I, that's the, what I explored in 
terms of inventing this this civil war that happened that that ended up splitting the country. How did you feel when you were writing some of those parallels? Yeah, I think, you know, the questions that I really started in my mind writing this book were, were sort of, again, like I said, we were having these questions in our country, these kind of societal questions, you know, how do we value a life? But I think even more recently, you know, with the recent overturn of Roe, I think we're really questioning, you know, access to medical procedures and which is very much the the question that's driving the awoken. You know, science can give us all these fantastic and great things, but then at some point, we are saying this is too far. We we can't do this. We shouldn't, this shouldn't be allowed. So those are all the questions that I'm asking. And I, I think at what point do we sort of sacrifice our humanity and prohibiting and trying to limit access to these things? How does that reflect on us as, as humans as well? I think that's a big question in the book that it, that I, I hopefully will help people ask these questions in real life today as well. Yeah, because you bring up, you know, where is there a line to be drawn if there is a line to be drawn? And then who gets to decide what that line is? I think that's the big question is who who gets to decide? I mean, again, talking about life extension science, you know, like I said, there's these big breakthroughs, but those breakthroughs are really only going to be available for a long time to the wealthiest of our society. So what does that mean when when the billionaires of Silicon Valley get to live until they're 500 or 1,000 and get to keep being, you know, frozen and brought back to life and, Meanwhile, all the people who are not privileged enough to have those kinds of resources, they have to now have, you know, die like like we always have. You know, what if once that equalizer is taken away, once no longer everyone dies, what does that mean for us? So I, I think that, again, these are all these questions that as science continues, we have to start asking ourselves these questions. And for me, science fiction is always the best place to ask these questions, right? It's that you get a fun story along the way while asking some of these deeper questions. So that's what I was trying to do in this book. Indeed. And so you're an Atlanta native, but currently you are still splitting your time coming back to Atlanta. You're not just in LA nowadays. Yeah, I actually I live in part time in Kirkwood, which is great. After my son was born, we wanted to spend more time with our families in, in back in Georgia. So we are out in Los Angeles still to work, but we come, we go to Atlanta quite often. I love the city. It's, you know, it's such a huge influence on me and my writing. You know, I think I very much consider myself part of the kind of Southern storytelling tradition. I, I bring a lot of that to all of my, all of my work. So I love to, you know, especially after my son was born to really refine my roots in Atlanta. Author Caitlin Monroe Howes. Her new novel, The Awoken, is available now, and she'll be at Little Shop of Stories in Decatur this Sunday, August 21st, for an author event. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, the master puppeteer known as Jigetto details his exhibition at the Center for Puppetry Arts. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The Center for Puppetry Arts recently expanded its programming with Puppetry Now, a series focusing on contemporary artists of color. The program launched in June with master puppeteer Tarish Pipkins, known as Jigetto. His creations are currently on view at the Center's Special Exhibition Gallery through September 25th. 
When Jaghetto joined City Lights host Lois Reitz's back in June, he began by explaining when his interest in puppeteering started. My interest began 20 years ago in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was a visual artist who I consider myself self-taught. You know, I had mentors over the years, but I never had like official training. I did uh, paintings, murals, and I started dabbling with sculpture, you know, like uh, wire sculptures and a voice in my head one day just said, make a puppet. And I did. <laughs> uh, I hosted a spoken word event because I'm a rapper and spoken word artist as well. And the response was really good. So I started, you know, playing around with puppetry. And when I relocated to North Carolina, I got to reinvent myself and jump into the uh, art of puppetry full time. Wow. How did you come up with the puppeteer name of Chiguetto? Uh, that's a funny story. I was actually uh, watching the last rendition of Pinocchio through um, Disney. I think this is the version where they had CGI. So my 19-year-old son, he was about five at the time. So we had the DVD and the DVD player. I'm dating myself. <laughs> I'm reading the back case of the DVD. And I'm, you know, reading the history of Pinocchio. And I'm like, well, I have to come up with a cool name for myself. And I'm like, Geppetto. And I was like, that kind of rhymes with ghetto, you know, where I'm from, from the inner city. And I was like, Geppetto, Geppetto, Geppetto. I was like, wow, that, that rhyme. So I jumped on Google. I searched it. I didn't see anything come up. The only thing that was close was a, a rock band in Brazil called Ja Ghetto, but it was two <laughs> words. And this was, I think, 2005, 2006. And this is when YouTube first launched. So social media was starting to take off. So I jumped in and I started, you know, hashtagging and using that name and it's I stuck with it. And I've been Jaghetto ever since. But as soon as I put the name together, I, I wrote it down on a piece of paper and I spelled it every way I could till I came up with the best way. And I jumped up. And I said, yes. And I did a victory lap around my living room. <laughs> it is a cool name. And I'm intrigued with how you embraced it. Because I remember in 2016, the film director, Quentin Tarantino, came under fire at the Golden Globes. He used the word ghetto in his acceptance speech for the award. And there was heated debate on social media. Ghetto implied racism and was considered pejorative. You didn't feel that in, in embracing it for your moniker. Yes, it's. I just wanted to let the public know what they were in for because I'm. Uh, my art was always through activism. I call it myself a, a artivist, where my lyrics and my poems and my songs were confronting injustice and racism. So I wanted to keep that same persona in the puppetry world. But I wanted to take that stereotype and flip it on its head because you'll see my name on the moniker Jaghetto, but I'll come up with a puppet and I will do box solos with a cellist marionette. So I'm just confronting the stereotypes and just knocking down doors with the name. And that's how I approach my art and my shows as well. It was very intentional and confrontational. Oh, that's great. I admire it. You created puppets for Missy Elliott's music video, Where They From. 
I read that the team searched for months for a professional puppeteer. I'm wondering how they found you and your initial reaction when you got the call. I actually didn't build the actual puppets, but I modified them. The puppets in the video were created by the team of Furry Puppet Studios out in the Bay Area. Ah. But I did modify them so they could dance. So yes, like you said, they were auditioning for months and I was introduced to Missy Elliott through a mutual friend I used to rap with back in Pittsburgh, you know, way back when. So he contacted me on Facebook and said, yo, like I got signed with Timberland. I'm actually hanging out with Missy Elliott and she's about to make another comeback and she's looking for puppeteers. So that's how I got pulled into that circle. Wow. It's all about who you know. <laughs> yeah, indeed, and, and you know some very successful creatives. You are a successful creative. How did you make the puppets who represent Missy Elliott and Pharrell Williams appear like they were dancing and twerking? Well, that was a uh, actually another puppeteer. His name is Richard Atkinson. He is the best puppeteer as far as a dancing marionette. He's actually from Jamaica. So, you know, those videos that are, you know, that surfaced a few years ago with the, the really crude marionette puppets with the baby doll heads and like pieces of wood. He's from that, that field. So she flew him up from Jamaica. I modified the puppets was the builder and I was actually his backup. So I did, you know, I was doing little movements in the video, like the segment where for the Pharrell puppet is, is drumming, that's actually me. So all the technical things, that's what I do, because I'm a, a builder and, you know, a performer, but he's the actual expert dancer. So we, we were, it was a collaboration that happened that made that magic uh, surface. Oh, it takes a puppeteer village, I'm learning. Oh, yeah, definitely. How do you feel about being the first puppeteer in this series, Puppetry Now, focusing on contemporary artists of color. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just blown away and, and just honored. Um, I was just talking to my wife yesterday. You know, I'm, I, was, I was so busy preparing for these, the installation and the stage show that I never got to sit and really think about what's happening. And it, it just hit me yesterday, the, the gravity of everything. And it's, and I, I mean, there's no words for it. It's, it's just an honor. And I'm just so happy they chose me, you know, to be the, the first one. Can you tell us a bit about the Spinocchio exhibition, about what's on view? Yes, there will be three interactive puppet sculptures. I uh, started this thing where I do installations where the public can come and actually manipulate the sculptures and make them move. So I'm building larger versions of robots and creatures for the public to come and see and manipulate for themselves. So it's, it's going to be an experience that, you know, I think everyone really needs to go see if you're in the area. Master puppeteer Tarish Pipkins, a.k.a. Jigetto. His exhibition Spinocchio is on view at the Center for Puppetry Arts through September 25th. More information is on our website, wab.org slash citylights. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Music, where we hear from local musicians in their own words. 
Hi, my name is Tyler Lee Frush. I'm an artist out of the North Georgia, Atlanta area. And uh, if I had to describe my music, uh, I, I would say it's a little bit of folk mixed with classical, some rock and country every once in a while. If I couldn't change a man that lays his heart in his grave And a woman I love and she I do sing and I do play instruments. I play guitar mainly, and um, I try and fool people into believing I can play a little bit of piano. I was introduced to the guitar at the age of 13, and it wasn't long after that that I realized that music will be what I do with my life. It wasn't a choice, I just had to do it. And I went out and I played just about every terrible gig you could, every open mic around, every five-hour, four-hour cover gig, and, until I worked my way up to where I could play original shows. And um, I met a producer friend of mine, Stephen Morrison, and we started recording. That's where I found the passion in the creation process of music, being able to write things and tell stories and, and build albums and things and kind of create a cohesive piece of art. My motivations are not about being famous or a rock star, multi-platinum selling artists. It's about being able to have the freedom to create and to have the ability to actually do that. To have something that is yours and solely yours, that you've put the pen to paper, you played the instruments or you wrote the parts, you crafted the narrative. It's just a beautiful thing. Well, I was born here in Atlanta. Uh, they say there's no place like home, and I guess that's true. And as for the area kind of uh, influencing my music, Atlanta serves as the backdrop to a love story in the song Goodbye Atlanta that I wrote and released. But it kind of goes deeper than that. You know, you write songs through experiences or, uh, you know, and I, I wouldn't have the experiences I have in my life if I was somewhere else. So in a way, Atlanta has kind of been uh, the backdrop for the majority of my songs. song I sent in is a single called State of Mind. It's off the upcoming album called State of Mind. It's a story about mental illness disguised as a song about substance abuse um, and how sometimes we don't see that full picture and lyrics start to contradict themselves and things don't quite make sense to the, to the individual in the song.
have an upcoming album called State of Mind, uh, and it will be released in late October or early November. I've gotten a few singles released and an EP we released over the lockdown called The Quarantine Tapes. You should definitely give a listen to it. So on all the streaming platforms. But um, thank you all for your time. I really appreciate it. Tyler Lee Frush and our series, Speaking of Music. More information about Tyler Lee is available on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., father-son jazz duo Ben and Leo Sidrin join us alongside Naranana Executive Director Joe Alterman. Plus, tomorrow we'll check in with H for the next installment in our series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. City Lights Executive Producer and Host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.